The book of Revelation really gets deep as Mariana's Trench in chapter 13. And so we are going to um, uh, the Mariana Trench. We, we are going to get down a little bit deeper, but we're not going to make a lot of progress in the text. But the reason why is I have determined that I am going to work hard at understanding this myself so so simply that I could even explain it to someone else. Sometimes you understand something well enough to spit the answer back out in the test, but you have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, I have to admit, Revelation is an is a easy book to do that in because there's so many different ideas and thoughts, and I'm going to give you some thoughts of my own, but hopefully we'll stick as close as we can to the text so that we can have some building blocks that we can use for the future. And uh, we have a practical application at the end. And so uh, if you want to set your alarm for that, you can go to sleep for between now and then, and then wake up, and uh, it'll be great. Um, you know, one of the things I've found to keep my, you know, you all have been working hard today. It's hot out there. Coming to the cool building can be hard to stay. Sometimes when I'm in a church service, I'm falling asleep, I'll just randomly say, Amen! And what happens is the sheer embarrassment of what I did forces me to wake up. I realized that it was not an appropriate time. Uh, everyone's looking at me weird. And that self-consciousness kind of wakes me up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just, I'm just trying to give you some tips and tricks to stay awake tonight. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a, a day where that heat is just kind of hitting me and just kind of making me want to sleep. I don't know what it is. So uh, if we need to, we'll do jumping jacks right in the middle of the whole thing, just like we were in the five-year-old class. And so if you hear a real loud amen out of nowhere, maybe that's what it is tonight, okay? Revelation chapter 13, let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump into our outline. Revelation 1 and 2. And I stood, 13, 1 and 2. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and, I, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority." Now, let's take our Bibles and hold your place there in Revelation, if you would, and let's go to Ezekiel chapter 1. The first point you have there is uh, that, that Satan is a counterfeiter, and what he does is imitate God in many areas. And here's an area that he imitates God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse number 4, uh, Ezekiel is, is watching God uh, move and work. And he sees the cherubim, and it says, look at verse number four. I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire, also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. So... Do some math. How many faces were there? Sixteen. You had four, four living creatures, and every living creature had four faces. 
and the four wings, and it goes on to describe them. Okay, now let's go to the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation. Does anyone know what the word apocalypse means? You do know what it means. It's easy. It means revelation. Apocalypse. So we think of apocalyptic literature. Uh, <laughs> how many remembered that? Remember? I, I, it's just so weird how our culture has taken apocalypse and made it the dark, terrible. And of course, the book of Revelation contains those dark images. But really, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's not a negative thing in the aggregate. When you get down into 13, it's a negative thing for sure. Okay, chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Interesting. Uh, there's, there's no cat represented there. There's a man, a calf, uh, you know, or an ox we find in other places, a lion and an eagle. So God has his four living beasts or creatures and Satan has his as well. And we're going to find in chapter 12 and 13, there is a type of satanic trinity. You have the dragon, you have the beast, and the false prophet. And you'll see as you, as you get into that how the dragon is the first one, and then the, the beast is the second. The false prophet comes and causes and pushes people towards which one? He pushes them towards the beast, not towards the dragon. The dragon is worshipped as well as the, as the beast. The false prophet tries to get people to worship the beast. And so there is, in, if, as we go through this, I'm going to give that to you just at the top because uh, it's very similar. You have God the Father, then you have God the Son who manifests himself on the earth, and then you have God the Holy Spirit who pushes people to Jesus Christ. He shall not speak of himself. He pushes people to Christ. So the devil counterfeits that. And I don't know how far you take that because uh, they're definitely not three in one as Father, Son, and Spirit are, but they are certainly connected. And there's a, there's, we'll get to it next week or, uh, or sometime eventually before the Lord returns. Or if not, we'll keep on studying even if the Lord returns. We'll be here working faithfully to the end. Of the, I'm just kidding. But I know this has seemed like an interminable study. But... Um, but, but you find here that the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a shadow, a dark shadow, a type of the, tr the real true Trinity uh, in chapter 13. Now, just for some people, you, you may never heard this. How many realize the word Trinity is not in the Bible? Okay? So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It was made up. It's, it's, it's basically someone made it up trying to say instead of unity, which is one T, it's three-a-ty, trinity. That's what they were trying to say. And, of course, um, you ought to know a verse off the top of your head. Do you have a verse off the top of your head for the trinity? Who has one? 1 John 5, 7, unless you have a modern Bible. And then you're going to have a hard time finding that. People don't like that one at all. 
Um, it's really, but, but it's, there it is. The, it's right there in scripture. And so you ought to know these things. And, and sometimes we get sidetracked or we get our, our wheels knocked off. And there we sit on the side of the road going, I know, I know this. Uh, the only way, and by the way, it's good for you to be on the front lines with people because you get embarrassed. And when you get embarrassed, you start caring. You start caring. You start like, man, that hurt. I'm not, that's not happening again. I'll never forget, uh, giving a verse to a lady at the door and she was a Jehovah's Witness and I gave her 1 Timothy 3.16 God was manifested in the flesh she said well my Bible doesn't say that and it, the, new, the New World Translation doesn't say that a God was <laughs> I'm sorry it's funny obviously you guys didn't want to believe that so you changed it but 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 there it is and, and so getting on the front lines is really good for you because otherwise guys what are we doing man let's Let's just get out there. Let's do something with it. Well, what do you think? Uh, I think it's a good idea. Now, let's go to the second letter in your outline, letter B. He is a wild beast. He is a wild beast. Now, let me take you to Hosea chapter 13. Uh, minor prophets. Why are they called the minor prophets? Because they were all under five foot tall. They were all very... No, it's shorter books. Hosea is one of the longer books. And in the book of Hosea, we find a great corollary. He says in verse number five, Hosea 13, how do you find, how do you learn? Well, if you want to know, I'll teach you something I learned as a kid. I can teach you a little song. It always helps me. Or you can just, through rote memory, just get in there and find it. Uh, Hosea 13, you ready? Verse five, I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. According to their pasture, so were they filled. By the way, that's a great point. Whatever pasture you're eating in, that eating in, that will determine how you are filled. According to your pasture, that's how you're going to be filled. Uh, they were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, have they forgotten me? They were eating in the wrong pasture. Therefore, I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. Remember, the leopard has, is, is watchful. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart, and there will I devour them like a lion. Now, notice this. The next, you have, you have the colon there. The wild beast shall tear them. Okay, so here we have a corollary to chat, Revelation 13, 1 and 2. Because in each of these, you see verse 7, there's a qualifier before the lion. What's the qualifier? What, what describes it? Is he saying that he, that he was going to be a lion to them? As a lion. Notice in, in the next thing. What kind of leopard? As a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. Verse 8, I will meet them as a bear. And then there, he repeats the lion. There will I devour them like a lion. As in like. So we have to remember, when you're studying your Bible, it says, as this, like that, it's saying it's symbolizing, it's symbolizing. Now, the symbol is still powerful. If you see a bottle with skull and crossbones on it, you don't have to be afraid of that, because it's not a real skull and crossbones. It's a symbol, right? But if you drink it, you'll be skull and crossbones, Right? It's saying, be careful. This is what it's like. 
It's like you being a skull and crossbones if you drink this. And so be careful with symbols. You're like, ah, symbols don't matter. They represent something that matters a great deal. You follow what I'm saying? So he says, as a lion, as a leopard, as a bear. But notice he says at the end, the wild beast. The wild beast. Not as, but there, so there's three, and there's three that we have connected with. And then in verse, in chapter 13 of Revelation, we have this beast. And there's the fourth one right there in verse number eight. Not like or as, it's a wild beast. So just like God has his four living creatures, Satan has his beasts in chapter 13. Now let's go to Revelation 12 and pick up chapter 13, if you would, as well. Chapter 12, verse 3, and chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 3, There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. How many heads? How many horns? How many crowns? Okay, so now chapter 13, verse 1. I stood upon the sand of the sea, saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having how many heads? Seven. How many horns? And upon his, how many, how many crowns on his heads? Doesn't say, does it? It says on his horns, ten crowns. So you see there the difference. It's a red dragon in chapter 12, like unto a leopard, chapter 13. Seven heads match up, ten horns match up, but the ten horns in chapter 12 of the dragon are crownless, like some Christians will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, The seven crowns are on the dragon's heads, not his horns. And then you see in chapter 13, the ten crowns are on his horns, not his heads. Each head has a crown in, the, in chapter 12. So it's just something to, something to think about. Now, I want, I want to show you the contrast. That's how you learn, um, just like when you go in to buy the diamond ring um, for your sweetheart. And the jeweler takes a piece of black velvet and puts it underneath and then puts the diamond on top. Why? To show how much brighter it is. It gives the contrast. So that's how we study the scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And that's why you can never really learn the Bible uh, completely unless you have one text Because, man, you think Revelation is hard. Try multiplying by 250 English translations where everybody says, well, I I think that word should be this. Okay, forget it. I'm done. It's hard enough with one book, with one Bible, let alone with 250. It's impossible. So So when you study, though, there's enough in here to keep you busy the rest of eternity. And so you're going back and forth going, okay, it says that, but not that. And if you feel a little bit out of your mind while we go through this, man, I can tell you this, I feel the same. And I know people who have, well, they haven't quite checked themselves into the institution, but they need to. And they're looking into institutions. Um, I'm just kidding. But, but sometimes you feel like you're going crazy, but you got to slow it down and say, okay, here's what he said there. And here's what he said here. So that's why I put that little table in there. And to show you that I can play around in Microsoft Word too. Okay? Now, let's go to letter D. Letter D. The beast has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. 
This is not the same as the dragon. Now we know that there's a connection. We'll see that here in a moment, but they're not the same. What do these symbolize? The seven heads symbolize seven Gentile kingdoms used to persecute Israel. Now let's, let's prove this from the Bible. And here's what, here's what I do when I'm going through. You can do whatever you want. But sometimes notes, I take notes and I got a whole drawer full of them. I mean, I'm flush with notes. But I don't always review them. And so if I really want to know something, and remember, I put it in the margin of my Bible so that I don't forget, right? Now some of you, you're like, I know, I know. But, but some of us, you know, we're still learning that, right? So Revelation chapter 17. Let's go to chapter 17. Now, what point are we making? The seven heads. I just don't understand the Bible. Well, believe me, I understand what that's like. But here's how we learn. 17.3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, verse number nine. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains... On which the woman sitteth. Okay, so the seven heads symbolize these mountains, and the mountains are kingdoms on which the woman sitteth. She is a harlot, and she has committed fornication with the kingdoms of the earth, with the kings of the earth, right? But the seven heads are separate. We have horns. And we have heads. The heads represent the kingdoms. The horns are the ones that uh, represent the kings. So, back in chapter 13, notice we've got seven heads. The heads exist. John sees them all together, but they represent one at a time kingdoms. All right? Kings over, over time. Seven successive kingdoms. The heads, the horns, and the crowns represent the combination of the sequence of the four world empires that we looked at last week, comprising the time of the Gentiles. And I'll show you those in a moment. Here the beast over the fourth empire leads them as the ultimate embodiment of all the forces of evil. Now, we say, wait a second, hold on. I thought you said there's four beast empires... Why are there seven heads? Well, let's go back and let's do our best to look. at. I put down just three commentators. There's so many that you can look at. Many of them agree. But uh, what we have in our first column, you see four, five, and six, since uh, four, five, six, and seven. Those are the corresponding empires we looked at last week. We looked at the first beast, which is the lion, the second beast, the bear, third, the leopard, the fourth the wild beast or the diverse beast. I put wild just because of uh, Hosea. Okay, so Dr. Ruckman, would, he would categorize them as Nimrod, Pharaoh, Sennacherib. Okay, those were guys, kings before Babylon. Now, Nimrod was technically the founder of Babel, which became Babylon, but, but he categorized uh, because we know that that first lion, first beast, the lion, that was Nebuchadnezzar. But there's seven. So where do we get seven from? Well, there's differing opinions as to which kingdoms came one, two, and three. Are you following me so far? So we know four, five, six, and seven. We know what that is. 
but who are the one, two, and three? And that's where the differing is. There's even some differing in the other numbers, but everybody agrees on the seven. So you notice here, you've got Nimrod, Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Darius, or the unnamed. It's interesting, we call him Alexander the Great, but Scripture does not name him. However, Scripture does name the, his successor. Who succeeded Greece? Who followed Greece? Starts with an R-O-M-E. Rome, very good, excellent. Listen, believe me, I'm, my head's spinning too. Okay, but, but Alexander the Great is not mentioned, but Caesar is mentioned in the scripture. You ever find that interesting? Caesar Augustus, he's mentioned. And another Caesar, who's another Caesar that's mentioned? I uh, can't remember. There's another one. There's, 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 there's I think, two, maybe three Caesars. But, there, but no one's mentioned as the leader of Greece. It's interesting. And that's why he called him un, the unnamed, the mystery man, X, whatever. Okay, uh, Dake. If you've never studied Dake, he's good. Um, he, he, he's, he has his own study reference Bible. It's a good Bible. Um, he lists them out as Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the old Roman Empire, and then the new Roman Empire. Um, and then Williams, Egypt, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, now, one of the things, and the reason why uh, Williams puts Rome there is because the beast that rises with the ten kings is just a continuation of the old Roman Empire. Okay, so that's, that's why when you see these four beasts and you see that fourth one and he has, you know, characteristics of the leopard and the lion and the, all that... He's just a culmination of all of those, and he's not necessarily a completely different beast. Like, Daniel doesn't even know what he is. He's, in truth, truth be told, he's a behemoth. He's, he's a multi-beast. That's what it means. Uh, it's a, a Hebrew plural for beasts. It's beasts. That's what behemoth means. It's like a hybrid beast. And Daniel's looking at it saying, I don't know what this is. And John picks up on it in 13. He sees the beast rise up out of the earth. And he says, yeah, it looks like a leopard. It's got, you know, feet of a bear and mouth of a lion. I don't know what it is. And what's interesting is the next word. Did you see the next word that's mentioned? Uh, or the next, the next noun, I guess you'd call it. The dragon gave him his authority. So he has characteristics of a dragon. He is like the outworking of that dragon. Remember Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've got the dragon, then you've got the beast that rises up. That's it's this weird hybrid animal. What is this thing? Well, he, 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 he's got characteristics of all of those. So it's a reprisal. It's like a reboot of the old Roman Empire. Okay. Now, you can go through, we don't, we're not going through Daniel's image, but man, there's a lot of connections. We will go through his image here soon, because guess what? Another image shows up in chapter 13, and it, it's a reboot of, of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Okay, so let's go on to number two here. The, the first is the seven heads symbolize seven Gentile kingdoms. All right, and then the ten horns symbolize ten future kings or leaders who will make up the seventh head. So they're working in conjunction with this beast. 
And the Bible says that they, they have power with him for one hour. They, they have a temporary arrangement, an alliance, where they, they join up. They're like a power team. They get together, the dream team, just for a short time. That's the ten kingdoms of the future Roman Empire. So it's not going to be a bunch of boys from China. They're not going to be from South America or America. They're going to be from that area, the Roman, old Roman Empire. It's going to be a reboot, and they're going to start coming up. And you ever notice the European Union has a hard time getting going? They bring people in, they start going down, and the, you know, the euro goes up, it goes down, up and down. They just can't get the thing together. But when the beast shows up, he's going to take their power, and he's going to collate it, and they're going to be like, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the guy. And then he's going to, you know, he's going to do away with them. Or he's going to, he, he doesn't want to have an alliance. He just uses people. And the crazy thing is, we sometimes think about it as, you know, some devil or demonic spirit or something. And that's certainly happening behind the scenes. But he's going to show up as a man. He's going to show up as, let's say, a guy like an Elon Musk. I'm not saying he's the beast. I'm saying someone has, pulls a lot of respect from a lot of different sectors, and he gets people to the table. And people are, are thinking, now he'll help, that guy will help us. And uh, so that's, that's what we're looking at here. Okay, but notice, look at chapter 17, and look at chapter uh, 17, verse number 12. 17, 12. It says, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. Okay, isn't that helpful? I think it's helpful. But because, well, I think it means, I think it means that. Well, you know, you can meet a guy on the subway and thinks it's talking about, you know, uh, his ten uncles. I'm telling you, he, from New York City, you could meet anybody that says anything. And uh, it's just nice, instead of thinking about what it could be, just look at what it says. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. And notice, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So these guys are coming in as potential leaders, and then when the beast comes, he collates that power. So you see, there's been a change here. This red dragon, remember chapter 12, there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with, with the dragon, and he comes down... Uh, he's, he's knocked down. He comes up representing ten kings instead of a seven-king kingdom. So the idea is this. What are the seven-king kingdoms? Well, you know, you could say it's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, all those guys. That's what he represented. That was his uh, calling card. I've been controlling these people since the dawn of time. These are, this is my posse right here, the seven guys. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, then he loses in heaven. He comes down. And then he gives his power to a man. He gives his power to a man. Just like God the Son, God became a man. Well, the devil picks up on that idea. He says, well, I'll bring a man to the forefront, but this time it's going to be ten kings rather than seven. So he shows up. The beast shows up. Not as Satan who had seven heads, right, uh, or, or seven crowns. Now he's got ten crowns. And what he's doing is he's, he's coming up through the ranks with these kings, does that make sense? Okay. So what are, we, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the future headlines of what's coming. And, you know, don't worry about who, who the Antichrist is. Don't worry about that. The beast is going to show up with ten rulers. So people have broken their brains trying to figure out who are the ten rulers. 
The European Union, it was like 10 for a while, and then it was like 14. It's like, who, what are, is the European Union even a thing anymore after Brexit? Like, this is what we're thinking. And the problem with that is, um, you, we, we just, we can't tell. We don't know what's going on with that. But we do know that after the rapture, these are the things that are going to come into play. And, and so you don't have to worry about who are these people. But it's just nice to know that God knows everything that's going on. And he's not, it's no question to him. He's telling you ahead of time. Now, let's go on to Roman numeral, I'm sorry, letter E, or whatever you have. I don't know what you have. I think I missed, missed it on mine. Another failure. He is given supernatural power, seat, and authority from the dragon. So look back at Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 says, The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The dragon gave him his power. So I want you to see something else here too. Look at chapter 9. This is Abaddon or Abaddon. A-B-A-D-D-O-N. That's who this is. Chapter 9. It says in in verse 1, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven. A star fall from heaven. Hmm. A star. A a, a meteor? Like Like a... physical, you know, celestial body. No, look, under the earth, and to him was given the key. So this star is an angel, okay? This, this is referencing the time frame when that star, Satan, fell from heaven. He fell down, what did he do? Well, he was, to him was given the key. He got kicked out, and he got the key of the bottomless pit, And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Look at verse 11. Talking about the locusts. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Isn't that interesting? So he is indebted to Satan because Satan let him out of the bottomless pit. And what does he do? Well, these locusts, these hybrid devil locusts, whatever you want to call them, they are given power to hurt and destroy people on the earth. Okay, And they have a king over them. Who is the king? It's Abaddon or Abaddon, and that's who we're talking about in chapter 13. It's the beast. The beast. So the beast, this beast in chapter 13, verse 1, is subordinate to the dragon, and you'll find later that the, the false prophet is subordinate to the beast. Do you see how that hierarchy works? And in a, in a similar way, though the Bible says uh, there are three that bear record in heaven, and these three are one, but there is somewhat of a hierarchy that, that they voluntarily submitted themselves to. So you've got God the Father and God the Son said, I do always those things that please him. I don't do anything but what he tells me to do. And then you've got the Spirit who doesn't speak of himself but points people to Christ. And um, it, it's, it's amazing. But, even, but Jesus was led of the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? And that's the, the reason why the Lord tells us to be subject one to another. Christ was subject to the Spirit, and the Spirit was subject to Christ. Man, 
That's divine. And when you, and when you get that in your home or your, in your place of business or in the church, it's supernatural. It's divine. It's a wonderful thing because that's the way God works. And by the way, God in Scripture is a reference to the Trinity. It's a reference to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And uh, there are some you know, variances there, but that's generally what he's talking about. God was manifest in the flesh. Okay, now, what we find a parallel here. The dragon gave him his power and his seat. Do you remember when the dragon tried to give power to, say, to Jesus Christ? You remember that? Matthew chapter 4? When he said, uh, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And what did he say? All this, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And what did Jesus Christ say? Get thee behind me, Satan. He refused power and kingdoms from Satan. And so now, what he could not convince Christ to accept, he seduces the beast to receive. Again, you know, we think of, we think of the beast sometimes as the devil, and whether or not he is the devil incarnate, he is, first of all, um, he is a man. He's a man that comes up, and he is accepted as a man, and so... He is coming out of that bottomless pit. There's something that this brings him out, and he's the king. I don't know. Is, is he a king from way back? I don't know. Some people have theorized that it's Nero. Some people have said that, you know, it could be uh, Alexander the Great, somebody like that. Who is this king? I don't know. But uh, it, it is interesting. People have talked. You could find all kinds of crazy stuff. But Alexander the Great died at what age? Do you know? He was 33. And uh, he wept because there were no more uh, kingdoms to conquer, they say. Whatever. I'm not an Alexander the Great uh, expert, but it is interesting, a lot of parallels. So people wonder, like, who is this? But it's a man, okay? And this man is seduced by the dragon. The dragon promises him this stuff. And, and, you know, the Bible says that uh, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers, Right? Wickedness in high places. Why? Uh, it, this, this world is all about power. And truth be told, heaven is all about power. Who is going to receive the power? Well, Satan got some power, and now he's given it to this beast. He follows the example of God. Because remember, God gave his power to the true Christ when he said, All power, Jesus said, All power is given unto me. In heaven and on earth. He refused it from Satan and then he received it from his father. After the cross. You see what we want is we want the power now. And God gives power. God gives resurrection power. And what that means is you and I are going to have to die to self. You want power in your life. You're going to have to die to your own way and your own ideas. And he said the life which I now live. I live by the faith of the son of God. It's the power of the resurrected Christ in me that could do more with you than you can do with yourself. It's, it's an amazing thing that Jesus said, <laughs> this is, you want something cool? People are worried about the mark of the beast and the power of the mark and all that kind of stuff. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, was he lying or telling the truth? He was telling the truth. How much power is given? All power. Now, what does that mean? Well, he, he, he's allowing Satan to do his thing on this earth. He's a god of this world. But he has all the power. He has the, power, he has the keys of, of, uh, of hell and of death. 
And he said, I'm alive forevermore. No one can ever put me to death. I have all power. And then he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Power for what? Well, I mean, power to get along with one another and power to, you know, not be depressed and power to pay your bills and power to have a good attitude. Yeah, all for sure. But he dials in on the Great Commission. That's what his power is for. Is it any wonder why you feel the weakest when you're trying to pray and when you're trying to witness? Isn't that interesting? That's where Satan is going to focus his attack on you. Because that's what the power is for. It's for getting more sons of God into the kingdom of God. It's a great, it's a great thing. Now let's look at number two. He's given power, which of course we mentioned already, mimics the power that Christ was given. And then he's given a seat that mimics Christ's throne. Now we won't turn there, but Acts chapter 2 verse 30 talks about... Uh, he said, therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So a king must have a seat. And what is the seat? A seat is a throne. So when you read in the Old Testament, in the book of, uh, of Leviticus and Numbers, when God had them build the tabernacle... What, what was it called between the cherubims? The Ark of the Covenant, tw- cherubims, what was in between? The mercy seat. It was a symbol, a shadow of the real seat of God in heaven. So you were approaching and you, had the pres- you were coming into the presence of God himself. The Ark of the Covenant was his throne. That's where God would meet with them. And that's where we come before the throne of God. And how many times was the high priest allowed to go before the throne of God? One time a year. Now, you and I have an opportunity to go all day, every day. Why? Because we're not just uh, um, uh, people that have someone, a mediator. We are made priests unto God. And, And the middle wall of partition has been broken down. Because of the blood that Jesus Christ offered, once once uh, sacrifice for sins forever. It's an amazing opportunity. You have remember when Esther Esther would go into the queen uh, as the queen would want to go see the king. What did she have to do? She had to be very careful about it, and she had to wait for what for the scepter. Why she didn't have twenty four seven access. It was all based on whether or not he felt like having people come in that day. That's what, the way it was for the nation of Israel too. Uh, God said you have one chance every year to offer sacrifices and to, you know, clean your act up. But you and I have a privilege. Has the devil lied to you about prayer? What do you think about prayer? A burden? A challenge? An unfinished checkbox? Is it any wonder, is it any wonder that he lies to us about the presence of God the same way he lied to, to Eve and Adam about how they didn't have to follow his rules. Really, he got them away from the presence of God. So now God comes walking in the garden. He says, Adam, where art thou? Why? Because Satan was able to deceive Eve, not Adam. Adam let her be deceived. And what did it do? It took him out of the presence of God. Satan is trying to beguile you and I through his subtlety 
to keep us from the simplicity that is in Christ. What's more simple than saying, God, I need help today. God, guide me. Please, Lord, I ask that you would, you would help me to put off the old man. That's easy, simple, but the devil beguiled. He lies to us. And now prayer is this hugely complex thing. And when you go and you kneel down to pray, what do you say? Well, God, I know I shouldn't even be here, and I know that I've sinned, and I know I never stop what I'm doing. And we, we spend all this time trying to like, make up for our lack of prayer instead of praying to God. And then prayer is this huge burden that we can't even, you know, we can't even bear anymore. Because then every time you think, you, even when you kneel down to pray, you're thinking, I should have been praying all week, and I haven't been. Isn't that wild? Am I the, am I the only one? You see, the, the power is at the mercy seat. It's where God sits on his throne. That's, it means... That, that you have an opportunity to approach the most powerful being in the universe by faith. Don't let the devil take that away from you. Don't let your flesh take it away from you. Go to God and pray real prayers. Stop saying the same old, same old that you always say. Now, listen, if you're disciplined and you mean every word, that's, that's fine. But if you're not careful, sometimes I find myself saying the same old rote things that I always say. Why? Because supposedly that's prayer. That's not prayer. That's a telemarketer on a script. <laughs> you, ever, you ever get those robocalls? Remember back at 10, 10, 15 years ago? This is your captain speaking. <laughs> I wonder sometimes if the Lord answers the phone. Yes, hello? Hi, this is so-and-so, and I just want to say, God, I'm thankful for the Oh, another robocall. <laughs> right? We need to pray some real prayers. We have an opportunity to do that before the mercy seat. But here we have this, this uh, seat that is given by the dragon to the beast. A seat. What is it? Well, it's, um, it, it's a throne. It's a throne among the Gentiles. Now, for sake of time, we won't go there, but, but you have Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. He uses the phrase, the synagogue of Satan. And it's among those who say they are Jews and are not. They're false Jews. So the synagogue of Satan, that's the worship center. But then he says, I know thy works, talking to Pergamos in chapter 2, verse 13, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now, I don't know for sure where that is, but there, hey, maybe that's going to be where he comes out of. You can go and find the altar of Zeus if you want. It's somewhere over there in Pergamum. I don't know. They had it. You can find it. But it, it seems that there's a separate thing here. The Jews are working with Satan against the doctrine of God. But then you have the Gentiles, Pergamos, uh, where that, that was where Satan's seat was. They are using their civil power against the saints, against God. And by the way, that's why God separated the civil and the spiritual. It's not that we can't have spiritual people in leadership. It's that God does not expect the pastor to enforce the laws. I, have, I for one, am glad of that. I'm very glad of that. Uh, you, don't, you, you don't get pulled over and say, I'm sorry, pastor, I know I was, I was speeding. I'm glad the policemen are not the religious leaders of our, of our nation. They, they are separated out. Um, only, only the Lord, only the Lord is, is capable of doing that. And in the future, 
He said he made us kings and priests. So there's a combination of that going forward. But Satan uses those as, as two separate things. He tries to combine them, but notice you've got Satan's seat and you have the synagogue of Satan. All right, so he gives them a seat, and then he gives them also one more thing, and that is great authority. And it goes beyond just power. It's one thing to have power. It's another thing to have authority. What is it? It is legal power. Legal power. Okay? You, you, might, get, you might rent a big uh, bulldozer and come to my house and knock my house down. But are you legally allowed to do that? There's a difference between power and authority, right? And, that, and that's what we're having here. We have legal authority. He has given this power legally. By the way, it reminds, it reminds me of Hitler, who did not have to grab power. I mean, he certainly took advantage of, of crises and things like that. But he came in legally. He was voted in as chancellor of Germany. He did everything very much by the book. And, uh, of course, as he went along, there was, there was you know, shortcuts that were taken. But uh, that's reminiscent to me of what's taking place here. The dragon is giving him this thing legally. It's all by the book. It's all very, very uh, constitutional. It's all being taken care of. But it reminds us that authority is legal power. He receives it by means of the legal system. And it reminds us of Jesus as the legal heir to the throne of David, both on Mary's side and on Joseph's side. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, like chapter 2. Okay, now let's go to some practical things as we close up here tonight. I want you to take your Bibles and if you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says in verse number 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. God has divinely instituted order, and he uses oftentimes that word head. He expects us to be under the head. Of, of our divinely appointed leader. Watch, watch what the beast does. The beast comes in legally, but he's, he is being given this power from this seven-headed dragon. And even in this satanic rule, there is an order, there is, there's an authority. And what happens is, we, we sometimes think it's just the devil, he's all combined. You know, there's all kinds of fighting that goes on between kings in the, book, in the tribulation. Back and forth, up and down. And it reminded me of the importance of the headship. The headship. So we live in a culture, in our culture, which is kind of very independent. 13 colonies said, we will not have this man to rule over us, King George III. And I'm thankful. I think there's some, there's some good things. He was a tyrant. I'm glad that we, uh, that we secured some liberties and so forth. But I, I think we have to be careful that we don't continue to take that stance. Because here, the Lord says the head of every man is Christ. If you're trying to get your, your home under your head, that's a good thing. But God has a head for every person. Does not say the head of every man is the pastor. My job is to remind you that your head is Christ. I have that's the authority that I have to remind you, to preach to you, 
And you have the, the, you know, the choice whether or not you want to come and listen to me blab and go on and on. But my job is to tell you that. But your head is not the pastor. Your head is Christ. So let me ask you this. How, good, how well does your wife do at obeying and following her head in your home? People, you know what people say today? I don't think so much that's, that there's a headship thing. I think it's, you know, complementarian. Right? Well, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Do you mean that we both decide when we want to help one another and we both serve one another? Hey, we should serve one another. We should be kind. But the, but the Bible clearly says here, the head of the woman is the man. The Bible never says that the head of the man is the woman. Well, the Bible says be subject one to another. That's true. But he never tells the men, husbands, obey your wives. All right, I, I guess it's getting really late. We should probably close. Okay, but here, here's the thing. Ladies, do you want your husband to obey Jesus Christ? You should. It's right. You say, well, what are you going to say? Then that means I should obey him? I didn't say that. You said that. No, listen, I'm not trying to be snarky. We have to be careful that we do not erase the concept of headship. Because when we do, we are erasing the Bible. What does it mean to be a head? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That's what he's doing for his bride. So husbands, what should we be doing with our, with our headship? We should be giving ourselves so that we could sanctify our wives and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. We should be knowing the scripture, studying the scripture so that we can help our wives. You know what the average man says? I ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. She's got her relationship with Jesus. I ain't talking to her. So you let her have stew in her emotions and her attitudes for days and weeks and months on end, and you're afraid to talk to her. Doesn't, isn't it true that, that the head, our head, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, he comes and he talks to us and he reminds us and he reproves us with the Holy Spirit of God through the word? Isn't that what he does? But, you know, it's easier to hear that from someone who has given his life for us. You know what some guys want to do? They want to say, listen, I ain't saying nothing to her. They go to that extreme. Or some guys go to the other extreme and they say, I tell my woman all the time. She never listens. Both of those have their place in this way. First, you love and you give your life for that person. And then you admonish you nourish, you cherish. Now, the reason why it's so quiet in here, because this is the hardest job in the, in the human race, I believe. For the wife to submit herself to her husband, for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that he sacrifices and works hard. You ought to do that. It doesn't just mean that he sends her love notes. You ought to do that. It means that he cares about her spiritual improvement. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying we should do it. I'm saying that's what the Bible says. <laughs> we, got it. We, this, we have to retrain our brains. Because what people think sometimes is, well, are you saying that men are smart and women are stupid? 
Well, in some cases, that is true. Sometimes men are stupid and women are smart. It's nothing to do about the intellect. It's about the job that God gave you. And that job could be really hard. In fact, if you're going to do it the way Christ did it, you're going to end up on a cross. You're going to have to die to yourself to be what God wants you to be for your spouse. It's easier said than done. And and you know what a lot of us do? We pretend to do it, but really we're avoiding. We're avoiding. So you say, well, I've got an issue. I've got an issue. And this is not a marriage seminar, but this concept of headship is is all through the uh, the Bible. Over and over again, uh, we find that Christ is the head of the church. And that he has a priority, he has a, 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 a hierarchy in the church, he has a hierarchy in, uh, in the family, he has a hierarchy in government. I want to encourage you to do this. If you, if you find that maybe in your home that there is something missing in the proper hierarchy spiritually, maybe, ladies, you feel like um, your husband doesn't take the leadership. Or, or men, maybe you feel like your, your wife is pulling in a different direction. You know what you should do? Number one, you should get down on your knees before the mercy seat. And you should say, God, I need your help. God, I don't want the spirit of, the, of, of Antichrist to come into our home that thinks to change times and laws, that, that, that rebels against the, the authority and the order of, of God. I don't want that in my home. Lord, I don't want that. Because here's the thing. We talk about women should obey. But notice he starts out there in 1 Corinthians 11 that the head of every man is Christ. You know, the reason why we so easily can see the rebellion in, in someone else is because we've blinded ourselves to the rebellion in our own heart. You know, sir, one of the things that maybe you've done is you focus so much on how you want your wife to obey. You want your wife to get on board. Or I don't know what she's doing nowadays. People just, you know, declare a Cold War truce. You know, we'll just basically let it go. Could it be that maybe you've done the same thing in your relationship with the Lord? You'll come to church. You'll be there when you're supposed to be, whatever. But you haven't grown in years. You declared a Cold War. Hey, you don't push the nuclear button, I won't push it either. I'm not leaving church. God, just don't ask me to do anything crazy. Have you declared a Cold War with God? Have you and your spouse declared a Cold War? You know what the Lord wants? The Lord wants to come in and he wants to teach us how to follow him. And he gives us space and grace. Man, I've apologized to my wife so many times. She thinks that's my name. My wife has apologized to me. It's not a matter of, listen, get it right. Get it together, woman. It's not a matter of, when you start leading our home, then we can start. No, it's not that. We go before the Lord. We have to do this as believers and say, Lord, please be merciful to me. I can feel the spirit of that pushing back and forth. Lord, help us to have the Roman Roman centurion. It's amazing that in that Roman system, there was one man at least who understood the concept of spiritual authority. And he came to Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He said, I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I know how to take an order, and I know how to give an order. He developed both sides of that, and Jesus marveled. One of two times that Jesus marveled, he marveled at that Gentile soldier, part of the Roman Empire, 
part of the fourth beast that is yet to come, he marveled at that man. Why? Because he said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Putting Christ as my head takes faith. If you're a woman, a wife, following your husband takes faith. Why? Because, you know, he is who he is. We're idiots sometimes. You know what God requires us to do? To step out by faith and follow our head. And when you do that, the Lord sits back and goes, look at that. I love that. That is the best. Why? Because that reminds me of when I left heaven and followed my father by faith. And I endured the cross expecting to get joy on the other side. Not expecting my life to be sugar and spice and everything nice. I was willing to endure suffering and obey my head. And God glorified me and exalted me. And he gave me a name which is above every name. You know what you find in heaven? You find that the lamb has one head. Not like the dragon. Not like the beast. He has one head. And on his head, many crowns. Why? He has a unified spirit and soul. He is connected from top to bottom. All locked in. And the closer we get to God, the more he makes us that way. What happens is after years and years of working together with people, you see a husband and wife, you ever notice that sometimes they start looking like one another? It's the weirdest thing. What happens? They learn to work together. Not through fighting, but through understanding. Through agreeing. Agreeing with what? I don't know about you. Agreeing with one another only works so far. But we both agree with this. When we both agree with this, it's amazing what God does in the home. So there's the practical application tonight. I hope it'll be a blessing. And uh, prayer is of the essence. Let's look at our prayer list very quickly.